Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Max Verstappen had pole position, then he didn't. Ferrari had control, then they didn't. And on a day when any one of the drivers from the big three teams might have won, it was Lewis Hamilton who came through to win the Mexican Grand Prix. host Ed Stewart and joining me in my hotel room in Mexico City's reformer area first is Scott Mitchell a very angry Scott Mitchell not quite as angry as you were a few minutes ago though no I think uh, anger has given way to delirium I think and as the evening sets in on Sunday evening here in Mexico um yeah I was uh I think we were all absolutely furious because we had a long day at the track finally get back you know there's still a bit of work to do You've got a podcast to do so you dive in to a well-known fast food establishment. Um, Scottish sounding. Scottish sounding. The, uh, the Golden Arches uh, welcoming you on arrival. And <laughs> can, what can only be described as the single worst eating experience of my life. I don't, I've never waited more than half an hour for fast food before. And then when it came out, it was absolutely dreadful. In, in an establishment with no queue? No, but with plenty of staff sort of faffing around behind the counter, apparently sort of creating everything one bit at a time so you know that was a that was a lovely end to the day I'm sure we, we all thought we were actually going to have quite a quite a sensible finish and it was actually going to be quite pleasant I'm, I'm just pleased that the anger ha- the anger has genuinely given way to just being a bit mad at this at this time now you, you were even more angry than I was when I couldn't find the the uber pickup spot that was badly signposted outside the circuit you were furious about that but I don't I think you you were you were angrier when you were absolutely baffled by how to undo a plastic straw 
yeah, despite my name, I, I struggled massively with that, uh, that earlier. But anyway, um, we've also got Jack Benyon, fresh from his first Grand Prix for Autosport. Now, we've got to tie up a loose end. You set a trivia question on the last episode of the podcast. What was that question? It's a pretty impressive debut, wasn't it? I managed to give you a pterodactyl impression and revolution the po- revolutionise the podcast by giving you a trivia question. I'm glad I got revolutionised out there perfectly first time out. I should just say that Jack Benyon at this stage is sort of luxuriating on my bed at the moment. I'm sort of sat on the edge on the corner. Benyon wants you to paint him like one of your French girls, Ed. <laughs> it's that sort of thing. It's all a bit, yeah. I well, I did, I did suggest I was going to do the podcast upside down, so this is probably the best option. But uh, we should we should clear up at this point that the trivia question was who scored their only Formula One points during the Mexican Grand Prix in 1989. Which touring Thus, car on legend. On anniversary. And I did give the clue of which touring car legend. And uh, Andy Hicks was the first person to get it right as far as we know from being tagged on Twitter. And also Paul Gibson got the answer correct as well. So if you were wondering what the answer was, it was Gabriele Tarquini in AGS. Absolutely. It's always good to get, to get some uh, Gabriele Tarquini. On here. I enjoyed it when he came back with Tyrrell for that one-off in 95 when Katiyama was injured. Oh, Gabriele Tarquini. I love a, I love a one-off comeback. And Tarquini's still going strong. Uh, yeah, yeah. A great driver, a great driver. Uh, shall we get on with things and actually talk about the Mexican Grand Prix? Now, Jack, before we get into the race, we're going to have to tackle what happened at the end of qualifying. Valtteri Bottas crashed out of turn 16. Max Verstappen steamed past on his pole position lap. Did he deserve the three-place grid penalty? Do I have to answer that with a yes or no, or can I talk about it? It felt like a very, did he deserve the penalty? Say yes or no. Well, did he deserve a penalty? Say yes or no, then elaborate. I'm going to say no. Ooh. Is that controversial? Very. Continue. I like a debate. It's difficult. It's difficult. Um, Obviously, Valtteri Bottas took out the sensor box, so that made it very difficult for Max. The setup's really quite odd on that corner, isn't it? Because the yellow flag's on the outside of the corner on the left-hand side when the drivers are all looking at the apex of the right. So very difficult for Max to see it. Obviously, they didn't investigate until a little bit later on. And it was after Max made his uh, comments in the press conference where he was quite bullish about leaving it to the drivers to decide. Um, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth in in this conversation, but obviously saying that... um, the drivers should be trusted. They've got to Formula One at this and they're at this level, so they should be trusted as such. So, bit of a difficult one. I think his second lap was good enough for pole um, and I think they should have disallowed the first lap and not penalised him. That being said, I thought personally his reaction um, was a little bit on the um, aggressive side for how he should have put across his argument for um, maybe not a mistake, but um, obviously missing that yellow flag I think the I don't think the punishment fit the crime in this case I'm inclined to disagree Fair Sebastian enough. Vettel saw the yellow flag he slowed down uh, that wasn't a, that wasn't a problem and, it, and it ultimately it's a, it's a safety issue what you say about the the fact that the, the LED panel wasn't operating yet that is a mitigation which I could say justifies maybe giving a three place grid penalty rather than a five place but it's their job to see it it's a safety issue and for me the safety issues are not the ones that you play with. You know, there have been serious consequences to people not respecting yellow flags as much as they they should do. I don't want to go too much into what I'm referring to there, but it's not something to be trifled with. And the worst thing is, if you don't penalise, I was speaking to one former Grand Prix driver in the paddock after it, he said, if they don't penalise, then you are not going to lift for yellows in future. I I understand that there is an element of... uh of of being realistic with this sort of thing and when when i when i asked lewis hamilton on uh, on on saturday 
about that uh, about the incident and the fact that it was a single wave yellow rather than a double. So how much of a difference does that make? Because Lewis was quite impassioned about how much you need to respect double wave yellows in Although particular. Interestingly, though, there was some procedural issue there because the, the, the board, the uh, race information board, said double wave yellow, so it should have been. Yeah, but it wasn't. So um, I, so I asked Lewis and said, does it really make a difference? And he said it does because double wave yellows, you're, in, the, in the pre-event notes issued by the race director, the drivers are told single wave yellow, you have to show, uh, make... You have to be able to show that you clearly recognised it and made an effort to back off, be prepared to change direction, that sort of thing. Double wave yellows, non-negotiable, you have to abort the lap. So there is a clear difference, and there's also a clear difference in the way that the drivers react. In Lewis's words, if you see a single wave le- yellow, you basically you lift off and then you get straight back on, and the time loss is negligible, but you get you, there's basically a clear bit of data that shows you shows that you acknowledged it and even uh, even as basic uh, in levels as as karting you're you're taught immediately to to slow down and put your hand up to show that you've recognized the yellow now max didn't ignore the yellow on purpose i don't believe i i actually believe he didn't see it that's because perfectly plausible it's yeah. on the left as benyon said it's on the left hand side it's coming around that that long curved right hander your, your natural vision is going to be to look ahead to the right so you won't be focusing on that plus you've got the added distraction of the car that's crashed so i actually think max's case for for missing it is completely valid and i suspect if he'd actually been a bit more circumspect after qualifying, he might have got away with just having that that second lap time deleted because that is an option available to the stewards. And his previous lap was actually good enough for pole. Exactly. So he didn't need to keep his foot pinned. It's almost like he did it to prove a point because he said that he noticed that there was a crashed car. And while, as I think I've said to you, Ed, and a couple of other people, a crashed car doesn't mean that you actually have to back off. There's no rule that says that. Yeah, because Lewis Hamilton, who Verstappen complained about not being penalised, he had he had a, the tiniest lift, but he didn't really back off. But because the yellow flag wasn't out, it didn't matter. Exactly. So while I I, I accept that it's a, it's a slightly different difficult one, I, I believe that if it was in, I think if he'd gone to the thing, if he hadn't said what he said afterwards, I think if he'd gone to the stewards and said, "My bad, uh, I didn't see it." Uh, I kept my foot in because I didn't think I was in any danger of going off where Bottas went off. I saw the crash car; I wasn't going to hit it. Um, I think he he might have had half a chance of getting away with a reprimand or something like that. I'm not saying that the stewards 100% did it because he was showed such a lack of contrition afterwards, but it, it can't possibly have helped. And I just think it was such a needless thing to do. And I, I it, it disappointed me because I've been I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of Max and what he does, and I'm an admirer of how much mature he's got over the last 12 months. But it was just an indicator of on track he's still capable of these moments of. Uh, maybe not the, the the sharpest bit of thinking, and then off track he sort of compounds it by by sort of saying things that you know ultimately he was just being honest, but maybe he was a bit too honest for his own good. Yeah, possibly, but I, th- I mean they could have given him a bigger penalty ultimately, and I think they I think they had to do something because otherwise you just set a dangerous precedent. I just think you can't no matter what in, not in, no matter what the circumstances. If there's a yellow flag there, it's the driver's responsibility to, to spot it. And there is precedent because last year in China, Marcus Ericsson uh, improved under a double wave yellows and got a five-place grid penalty and points on his licence. This was a lesser um, transgression. It was single wave yellows, not a double wave yellow. And Max has been given a slightly more lenient penalty for it. So I, I think it's perfectly in line 
with what you should should do and the stewards do in these circumstances. So that, of course, promoted Charles Leclerc to pole position. He was actually rather lucky there because Sebastian Vettel was about to outpace him. Uh, Leclerc had been all over the place in the last sector. The rear had given up as he turned in the right-hander into the stadium so that the other rears were gone. So it, it, it would have been Vettel who was ahead had that crash not happened. But then again, Verstappen would still have been ahead. But, uh, but Scott Lewis, Hamilton, who started third, now he... He almost didn't make it through the first lap with uh, the goings-on. And he really wasn't happy with Sebastian Vettel squeezing him onto the grass on the run to the first corner, was he? No, he wasn't. But I think I think that did subside after the race when in the FIA press conference, Vettel explained or well claimed that he, he didn't see Hamilton. And as soon as he saw him, he, he stopped squeezing him onto the... Uh, onto the edge of the track and beyond but Hamilton wasn't happy about that he said that that sort of thing risks a big collision especially if you go wheel to wheel at those speeds Uh, but once he'd sort of backed out of that avoided the collision um, he then on the run down to to turn one I was under attack from the penalised Verstappen and then Lewis's version of events they sort of differs slightly to what actually (laughs) happened in reality he seems to think that Max torpedoed him into the first corner, but Max was actually perfect. Max was was alongside him basically, and, and was, he, he ran him out wide. But he ran he, him out wide, but it was uh, yeah, exactly. Especially it was Max was on the inside, and as plenty of stewards' decisions over the last few months since Austria, pretty much have has validated, uh, the car on the outside has a responsibility to to avoid an incident because by being on the outside, you put yourself in harm's way basically. So so Lewis was run wide. Um, got onto the curb on the outside of, of turn one, thought that he'd been hit from behind because he got such a kick of oversteer, basically. But he did a really good job not to, one, spear right completely into Verstappen, and two, T-bone Vettel. I feel a lot of drivers might two. have ended up taking out both of them. Yeah, he did a great job. And Toto Wolff even said after the race that Lewis has got this knack of just managing to avoid race-ending race situations. He's very good at it. But unfortunately for Verstappen, Max ended up being collateral at this point because Lewis did gather it up. He didn't smash into anybody, but he did He did, he did run off the road going into turn two and then he took Max with him because Max was on the outside of turn two at this point, so they both went over the grass. And um, at that point, Wolf said that he just felt like this was just going to be one of those Mexican Grand Prix. The last two haven't been very good for for, for Mercedes performance-wise. Um Verstappen's Verstappen won in 2017 and 2018 and Wolf sort of saw that all happening again as he saw his lead driver skate across the grass and the Ferraris canter off into a 1-2 but obviously the the race uh, 70 laps later was quite a different picture to the one after a couple of corners at this point I'd like to add some colour to the to the readers if that's right view Ed but uh, while Scott's facing us as he talks behind him, the TV is on as I'm a big American football fan and also basketball fan. And we're in the perfect time zone to watch those, but they finish now. And the, uh, just as you were describing the, uh, the Lewis gathering up the, the moment there and, and Max being forced off, it was played behind you on the screen. So we got to rewatch it while you were talking about it. And you did a great job. I've got to say fantastic commentary. Acceptable description. Very, very, uh, very well done. But of course, yeah, that, that put Hamilton in, a, in an awkward position at Leclerc leading from Vettel. Alban up into third place. And in fact, Carlos Sainz squeezed past Verstappen and Hamilton as they were heading off the track and uh, was up into fourth. So uh, for that bit of the race anyway, the McLarens uh, very prominent as Lando Norris was, uh, was also there. But then it came down to starting to kind of eliminate contenders and the first to remove himself from contention jack was was max verstappen he was he was briefly ninth actually behind kvyat after he rejoined and then he, he got that place back and then 
opportunistic pass on Bottas, dived up the inside in the left-hand hairpin in the in the stadium. What do you make of that incident? And could he have won from there? I think, uh, personally, I think it would have been difficult for him to win from there. Um, Max was fairly tight-lipped on the Bottas incident after the race, but Christian Horner was quite happy to speak about it afterwards. And he said on multiple occasions, answering different questions, that he believed that Max could have at least challenged for the win today. I think on, on pace, the, the the car in Verstappen's hands was good. I think the the overriding theme of the race was that the, the teams just didn't know how long those hard tyres were going to go. And I think if they all had hindsight, they could all go back and do things very differently. But Max obviously was forced into that long stint on the hard tyres because of the incident with Bottas. So um, he did over 60 laps on those tyres, which is over double what Ferrari was ex- were expecting that the tyres the would go. So a pretty sensational stint on those tyres. And not just that, it was the the speed that he showed. You know, he's, At one point, he was quicker than all the leaders. Um, but th- consistently through the stint, he was on the, the you know a similar pace to, to the leading car. So um, I definitely think it would have been in the conversation, but I think it, I still think um, I still think Lewis was a bit too strong today on the race pace. But the, with the incident, it's um, I'd be interested to hear what 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 you two think about the the incident. But it was a brilliant opportunistic dive from Verstappen and Scott. When we watched it, we we sort of um, acknowledged that as a you know fantastic overtake. But it, obviously, it became clear a few corners later that that there'd been contact there. And watching it back afterwards, um, Bottas didn't really have didn't really have anywhere to go but the the runoff's there on the outside as well so it's kind of like you kind of inviting Bottas to to make the decision between attempting to make the corner and, and stay with Max or, or head to the runoff in, in you know and hope hope he wasn't going to hit him in the right rear but I think to be honest Bottas because Bottas was surprised by it because you saw him with the locker and then we saw Verstappen coming he he wound it off and it's strange actually because he kind of avoided any kind of contact and then it was just when he was coming back into the corner he just clipped the I think it was a Bottas misjudgment, actually. Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree with that because, like I said, the, the runoffs there, and um, I think I, I think you you touched uh, touched on it perfectly there with the surprise. I just think Bottas was completely taken aback by someone trying to overtake him there, and you know we've seen Max do this many times at different tracks. Me, and he was focusing on Norris ahead as well. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think if you had to place blame on that one, it, it would be a Bottas one. But I think you would. I think the stewards are right not to give a, a penalty there. I had a lot of sympathy for 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 Sappen, actually. Um, he was absolutely the um, architect of his own downfall in qualifying should have been on pole um ironically i think he would have ended up in exactly the same position he was in at the first corner whether he started pole or started fourth but you know he's a victim of he's a victim of lewis's error or victim of circumstance through turn one into turn two admittedly he plays a part in that um by pushing hamilton wide but through no fault of his own does he get shoved or forced wide onto the grass there and that compromises him by putting him back into that position behind Bottas and then same again in going into that state into the stadium section um it's not uh I I didn't I don't remember seeing a an overtake there on merit last year Ed I don't think I saw anyone else try it properly here this year other than Max so again one could argue don't put your car in a place where there could be a problem but What's the point in going racing if you're not going to try and and pull a move? And it was, as Benyon said, brilliantly op- opportunistic. I thought it was an epic dive down the inside, completely caught Bottas napping. Bottas, complete misjudgment. It's entirely his fault turning in because he, he he'd done really well to avoid Max steaming up the inside, and then just sort of lapsed uh, in the last bit. So Max has got the job done at this point. You're thinking, right, okay, crack on, and then. As he's coming down the start finish straight, he um, he 
it looks like initially it just looks like Bottas is in the slipstream DRS and is blasting past and then obviously it becomes quite clear it's not all as it seems and then it turns out that he and the, his engineer had already been on the radio going down the start finish straight to say right rear puncher and etc etc and then eventually the the rubber comes completely off the rim doesn't it after he's already gone off and, and the time's time's been lost so he pl- has to go to the pits plummets to last and the race is ruined and not in the space of what what was it seven laps something like that and maybe not even that five or six laps so he's gone from being in a position for i think he was a I th- I, i'll go so far as to say max was a nailed on podium in that race and a genuine victory contender and he had that taken away from him through no fault of his own i think the only the only caveat i'd add is as well that um obviously we're we're discussing this as if we're seeing verstappen in his performance from after the puncture and adding sort of laying that over the races if he didn't have the puncture yeah you can't to, ex- do that. to explain that to explain that probably a little bit better um obviously Verstappen's stint on the on the hards was was incredible but there's nothing to say that if you know he'd made that overtake perfect on on Bottas and no no puncture that Red Bull wouldn't have put him on the same two stop as Albon because at that point they didn't know that the hard tire was going to last that long and, and that it was going to be the you know the the race tire that it was so uh, I, I I definitely think he would have been in the in for a, in for a podium I suspect shout. they might have gambled on the one stop with him because Albon they committed to the two stop because they wanted to undercut uh, Vettel and I'd guess, and this is just completely speculation, because Verstappen would have been a, would have been trying to make up a few places still. I think they might have just thought just leave him out if he's happy, and then and then that might have drifted them into the one stop uh, situation, which could have meant he was involved in that uh, in that group at the end. Plus, almost regardless of strategy, I think you can chalk ten fifteen seconds off Albon's race time for Verstappen because he's a superior driver. He has been quicker all weekend. He would have had better pace. He'd have also had a fire under his backside as well. So I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty convinced because Albon at times in that race looked really, really good. I'm sure we'll probably get onto him maybe a little bit more in a bit. But Albon looked really good. I'm not trying to take away from the job he did, but we just know Max is at that elite level, isn't he? So I, I, I suspect he would have been properly in the mix, and, well, unless we'll he managed way. to implode on his own later on. He's, he's, he's capable of that as well. We'll put it this way. Verstappen's ahead of Bottas. Let's say the collision doesn't happen. Let's say Verstappen does end up going on to a one-stopper. He is in with that trio that are all running together at the end. So by definition, that means he's a victory contender. Whether he could get track position, that's another question. That would have been extremely difficult. Ultimately, he had just he had just passed Bottas, and Bottas went on to finish third, didn't he? So well, this is, this is a massive loss of the race. And the 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 fantastic thing about that race was we had Hamilton and Vettel and Bottas all on one stops, but basically on completely different strategies. Had so many different strategies in that race, even even for the people who were doing the same thing, and to have Verstappen in that mix as well just would have made the the Grand Prix just that bit more exciting for me at the end. Scott, so we had Leclerc leading from Vettel with Albon third, Hamilton and Bottas fourth and fifth once they'd got past the McLarens. So the big question was always who was going to blink first. In the end, it was it was Albon followed a lap later by Leclerc. Now it proves that was too early. The two stopper wasn't the way to go, but were the moves understandable obviously Albon launched the move in an attempt to undercut Vettel yeah it's kind of it's it's Mattia Bonotto the Ferrari team boss sort of put it quite nicely where he said that at the time it's it was difficult to judge and then when you actually look back look back it's 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 quite obvious that they did the wrong thing but but Red Bull go aggressive they bring an Albon in he 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 was in he did a really good job in that first in he was hanging on to the Ferraris really nicely put himself in position where he can force the issue with the undercut as soon as he forces that undercut 
Ferrari has to respond with one of its drivers. I'm a little bit surprised that they went with Leclerc. I can only imagine, Benotto sort of hinted that Leclerc might have struggled a little bit to continue compared to, to Vettel. So maybe he was the most vulnerable and he's the race leader. So his position is the one that you want to protect the most in theory. So Leclerc then responds to, to, to Albon. They come in at the time, team and driver think that they've made the right decision. And you then have a situation where Ferrari consider bringing Vettel in uh, a lap later or swiftly afterwards. But they have a little bit of a discussion. Vettel questions it. They tell him to prepare as if he's boxing that lap. So he goes to push mode, come into the box. But then they decide against it and he goes on to extend the stint more than any of the, the, the other race leaders. By which point, obviously, Ferrari split the strategy. And that's at that, at that point, I didn't really think the race had gone away from Leclerc. I actually thought, right, he's in a decent position here. As soon as we saw... Um, as soon as we saw some of the lap times that uh, Verstappen was doing on the hards as he sort of made his way through and the fact that the longer the race went on and Ricardo, for example, was extending that, that opening stint of his in the midfield, that's when it became clear that those that were one stopping, namely Hamilton, Vettel and Bottas, were, were, were slowly becoming more and more in the pound seat to the point where even when Leclerc stopped again and you can see the immediate lap time he's able to do, it wasn't sustainable. So... I do think in the first first portion of the race, around that f- the time of the first stops, the two-stop didn't look like the wrong decision. But as we often discuss in these scenarios, the second you commit to a two-stop when you know a one-stop is viable, you give away track position, which is king. That's even on a track where you've got an ultra-long start-finish straight. I was surprised for several reasons, actually, at the timing. Not necessarily the two-stop, but Albon, they launched an undercut. The pit stop was fine. It was 2.2 seconds according to the on-screen graphic. That's normally slightly off, but it wasn't like a 3.3 second. Science blasted past. So Albon lost several seconds on that outlap behind Science. So I don't know quite what Red Bull thought was going to happen there. I guess they assumed Albon would be able to somehow be ahead of Science into turn one, which which I, I think was a miscalculation. So I think probably Albon went a lap early anyway in trying to do that undercut on, on Vettel. And I, I'm, I just don't really know. I don't really see why Leclerc needed to cover him at that stage once they realised how much time Albon was losing. I know they didn't want to get undercut by Hamilton, whatever, but it was... I wonder if it, they it took their like, eye off of Albon once Albon actually got possibly. to come out. Well, they'd have, been worried about, they'd have been worried about the ripple effect and others, and others attacking. But if you look at it, <laughs> Leclerc versus Albon, I think Albon was about 4.5 seconds behind Leclerc when he pitted. And then 8.8 and it was like, like 8.5. Yeah, so yeah, actually, yeah. it was about like a four-second yeah, exactly. loss or something. Albon actually made contact with Sainz on that outlap. Uh, he, they very, very light front left wheel to, to right left wheel just on the approach into turn six, the tight uh, double apex. Uh, on about, yeah, that, that, that caused problems for Albon. But yeah, I, I would definitely have preferred them to go on to hards just to keep options open, as you never know. And the whole thing with the hards, people constantly with, with whatever is the hardest compound say, oh, we didn't know enough about it. I know you don't have that much time in practice, but the number of times in races teams say, well, we didn't really know about the hards. It's like, well, Put twenty laps on the, on on one car at some stage on a on a Friday and get a feel for what the wear is like because the wear was non-existent on the hards and the the, the deck wasn't particularly problematic. So it's, it it almost is one of those things where I feel, I feel Ferrari that the the danger wasn't 
that immediate, shall we say. Uh, what they were worried about is Hamilton probably getting an undercut on both of them. Well, to give you an indicator of uh, how badly they misjudged it, uh, Mattia Bonotto said after the race that their indication was that they need, you needed to run until lap 30 before putting the hards on, really, to, 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 to go to the end on a one-stop properly. But as it turned out, as Verstappen proved, you could stop on lap five, <laughs> put the hards on and do a proper stint to the end. Yeah, and there are some unknowns there. So you kind of understand these decisions weren't made by chance. But yeah, I, th- I think they weren't the necessarily the, 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 the best options. Although I must admit at the time, it did seem like a two-stopper would be would be the safer option. But we didn't get get big uh, offsets. But of course, once, once that happened, you kind of divided the race in two and that we had... Uh, uh, Le- uh, Vettel, Hamilton and Bottas were one-stopping and then Albon and Leclerc had ultimately condemned themselves to fifth and fourth place respectively by being on the two-stopper. So then it was a question of when do the one-stoppers come in and eventually it was uh, it was Lewis Hamilton who who triggered that. He came in at the end of lap 23. Again, they thought about bringing Vettel in. They realised that the that the outlap pace of Hamilton was too bit was too good. He made up about 1.5 seconds on Vettel on that outlap which meant that Vettel would have come out behind him. So they then decided to extend Vettel. So I guess, Scott, this is the big question. Should they have extended Vettel as long as they did? They were going to lose track position. But as lap 23, Hamilton Vettel went all the way to lap 37. Lost quite on top of that one and a half seconds. Then there was about 6.7 seconds in the completed laps that was lost. So quite a lot of time was was lost there. There was, but I I think at that point, they did make the right decision. Because when we're talking about strategy in most races... How often do we do we see and question a decision to extend a stint by three or four laps, shed four or five seconds in race time with, for a minimal offset? And in, in this scenario, Ferrari gave themselves a proper offset, but they gave themselves a, a big tyre offset in a race where actually it turned out that the tyres weren't the limiting factor. And that, that I think that goes back to your point about why leave the hard tyre such an unknown when it's going to be such a key part of the race? So they definitely could have done more in turn, in preparation there. But I I, th- I can see the logic because Bonotto said once they realised that track position was gone, it was about, right, how long can we go giving ourselves a lot big an offset as possible so he's got fresher tyres at the end? Because if Hamilton's tyres had gone off the way, I think the vast majority were expecting, then Vettel would have would have had him in the last few laps and we saw those we saw that lap time that Vettel did straight out the box after pitting and I thought Hamilton was a goner I thought that's it hook line and sinker Ferrari have checkmated them but it, that, that's not how it works because Vettel's pace slowed up a, pretty much immediately and Hamilton just got quicker and quicker and quicker and everything every time Vettel came at him Hamilton was able to, to grow the lead back again I think if you look at it, it would have been interesting if Ferrari had responded immediately, but I don't think Vettel would have been able to regain track position. Where they lost it with Vettel was not being willing to take the same risk that Hamilton and Mercedes did by stopping as early as they did to go to the end. But again, when you've got the advantage, you're in the lead. Do you necessarily do that? So it was a, yeah, ultimately Ferrari was in a slightly weak position because the car in like-for-like conditions wasn't quite as quick in, in, in the race as the Mercedes. I think Vettel maybe had a slight pace advantage of maybe a tenth or two in the final stint thanks to the tyre offset but that was nowhere near enough as he as he said after the race so you ended up you know Lewis Hamilton Sebastian Vettel Valtteri Bottas they all just circulated for this last chunk of the race 
but it was it was great really tense to watch because you could you could see Vettel would take sort of three or four tenths out of Hamilton for a few laps and then Hamilton would respond and then there was still this question mark because Vettel was being given fuel saving instructions for a bit and then they told him right no more saving you're set and I thought okay can he can he go but he was never able to get close enough so uh yeah, I think it was just uh, kind of a, a stalemate in 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 the end there, and it, it was a it was a race of uh, of strategy when push comes to shove. But we should say, really good drive from Hamilton, I think, because he did have some floor damage as well from the uh, from what happened on the first lap. So that made it a little bit more difficult. He was he was worried about the uh, about the the tire life and that kind of thing, and also didn't know his race engineer, did he, Scott? No, he didn't. So uh, at those crucial moments where. Lewis needed to get the job done. Someone listening in and maybe expecting to hear the words "Lewis, it's hammer time." The the the, the man who speaks those words was was not around. Peter Bonington, Bono to to I guess to most fans who who listen. Bono must be. I think we I think this is how we described him in uh, in the the story when we 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 wrote about Bono missing this race and Austin for a personal medical procedure back home. Uh, he must be the most recognisable behind the scenes voice in F1 because I think I reckon he's the I reckon he's the only engineering personnel member of engineering personnel who if you played their voice to someone who watches the races they'd be able to name who they are yeah well you always hear from him and also the pure longevity of it as well because he's been there with Hamilton since the start yeah exactly seven years seven years together all of Lewis's Mercedes titles has been won with Bono um, and he was sort of around in in the in the in the background back home because I think he was helping the race support team and Lewis said he was still texting him for setup advice on the on the Saturday before qualifying but no but uh, Bono wasn't around so his uh, his race engineer role was was taken by Marcus Dudley and then uh, uh, I, I, I forgive me for the the bad pronunciation of, of of your surname chap but Dom Dom Riefstahl, who is normally heading up the race support team back at Brackley was on site as performance engineer for Lewis because that's what Dudley's role normally is. Uh, but Lewis and Toto Wolff were both full of praise for the job that Bono's replacement did. Uh, Toto said it was phenomenal. Lewis, nice little bit of self-awareness. He's not afraid to criticise himself, said, I know I'm not the most easy person to deal with. Having to deal with me over the radio isn't very fun for anybody. But he was he was full of uh, praise for what, for what Marcus did. So fair play because... I think Lewis described it as you could have seen it as a disadvantage coming into a crunch weekend without the person who's been your right-hand man for for seven years. But they equipped themselves very well, and it was uh, it was probably a performance that Bono would have been absolutely proud of. I can I can very much imagine Bono being the one over the radio telling Lewis, "No, come on, you can do this. You can do this. I know you've got." a million laps to do on these set tyres, but you can do this. They sent James Vowles on briefly. Yeah, they did, didn't they? they? It's almost like a bit of an SOS. <laughs> Come on, Lewis, I know you can do this. Please, please, please do this because this strategy is a bit <laughs> if risky. If I was Lewis Hamilton, I'd be terrified whenever James Vowles came on the radio because it always goes wrong. And to be fair, Mercedes' strategy normally is very good. There's been a few cases when it hasn't been, but when you're at the top for so long, inevitably that's very, very obvious. But <laughs> just occasionally we've heard that, you'd be thinking, oh, does that mean you don't think I can do it? It would have been. It, I know that a Grand Prix isn't exactly a moment for sort of those sort of comedic highlights, but when uh, when Vals came over the radio and said, "Lewis, it's James," I, he should have responded and said, "James, this is Lewis. I think you mean to be speaking to Valtteri." Because normally, when we hear Vals over the radio, a couple of times this year, it's basically been James coming on say, "Valtteri, it's James. 
yeah, sorry, but can you do this for the team, please? But we should say, yeah, the spot on with the, with the strategy in this race. Yeah, they could gamble a little bit. They didn't have so much to lose, but all credit to them for uh, for going for it. Now, Jack, Sergio Perez, he won Class B, seventh place, on home soil. As he said after the race, top three teams are in a different race. So great form for the home crowd. But we should also say, where did McLaren go? Because given Sainz and Norris were fourth and sixth and dicing with the Mercedes drivers early on. And suddenly at the end, there was Perez without a McLaren driver anywhere to be seen. Yeah, great nod to, to Perez for his performance this weekend. Bit of a difficult season for for Rosen Point in, in in on the whole, but great performance from from Perez today. And you know, rumours circulating that's been over three hundred thousand people attending over the course of the weekend, and obviously a lot of them back in Sergio. So great to see him doing well. And uh, every time we um, every time there was a lap in the media centre, we were watching on the screen. You knew when Perez was coming into the stadium section because you'd literally hear the crowd roaring through the through the media centre wall and. The media centre isn't that close to the, to the stadium section, so fantastic to, to hear that. But yeah, it was just a bit of a capitulation from McLaren, really. Science had a, a nailed on sixth place, uh, w- was ahead of Hamilton at one point after the start. And uh, his pace on the on the hard tyre was just non-existent. Um, Norris was a little bit better, but he was obviously taken out of the equation with the start melee and then uh, the the front left wheel, the thread on the, the wheel proving uh, problematic. He got going again, but he was so far behind at that point that he was completely um, out of the equation. So, yeah, Sainz said uh, switched off was the phrase he used on two or three different occasions in his in his answer about what had happened with the with the, um, the hard compound tyre. So he said the car just switched off, the, the rear grip switched off, and we started going backwards. Um, he did say and it's one of them things that happens once in a year. So... I'm sure they'll be hoping that they they pick up the pace, but Lando says they've got a lot of work to do on, on the car for for Austin. That there's a a bit of uh, looking inward for Lando with his driving, but also um, there's a there's a bit of work for the team to do as well. So it'll be interesting to see if they can bounce back in Austin. Just picking up on what you said about the the crowd, 345,694 was the official weekend attendance that F1 have uh, have put out not long ago. I've got an email with that on, so I thought I'd, I'd throw that in. But yeah, yeah, I don't think there was much science could have really done about it, although. Norris was a little bit better off because he was cracking on. He was struggling as well. The pace wasn't wasn't great. So I think, yeah, it was just one of those days where it didn't work. And science isn't always at its best when the rear is unstable. So, and, and one more thing on uh, Perez as well. He held off a, a charge in Ricciardo yeah. at the end, which can never be an easy thing, regardless of how good the Renault was. You got the honey badger coming at you and uh, trying to fight hunt you down in the in the last few laps of the race. That can never be easy. So he did well to hold him off as well. It wasn't like just because the McLarens weren't there that Perez was gifted an easy seventh place. He worked hard to get it. It's funny after the race, uh, he was asked about that moment and uh, and he sort of said, "Yeah, well, Ricardo hasn't got a Red Bull anymore to do those do those lunges." So uh, I, th- I think that probably helped Perez to hold on to that position as well because obviously it gave Ricardo a, a flat spot and uh, meant that he was safe. But you know, Perez has had a really really good season actually uh i think he's he's shown in comparing to what what stroll's been doing he's shown that he's, he's getting kind of the best out of the cars as we expect and he's had a run of decent results now since the singapore upgrade that the racing points livened up a little bit because they had a long run of races where they're 11th 12th 13th a lot of the time but he also of course benefited from being the fastest of those not in q3 so he was delighted to be uh to be starting 11th with a free tyre choice. I can't that, wait so. for that rule to change. Well, it's a stupid rule. It's because, ridiculous. Well, actually, it was a sensible rule once, but it's there to allow those a bit lower down to attack those at the front, whereas all it does is it means those at the front get a bigger advantage because they can start on the better race tyre if, if the medium's better. And then those who are at the front of the midfield lose out because 
that they they all dropped back. They all lost trap position. The two Torosos and the two two McLarens. Well, Norris had his problem anyway, but he was going to lose it anyway. So yeah, it's it's a rule that that, that it probably is going to be changed for next year. Although it's not one hundred percent certain, but but it would be sensible to do so. But yeah, Perez seventh, Ricardo eighth. Now we did have a bit of drama at the end, Scott. Uh, Hulkenberg was uh, was ninth on the last lap. He had Kvyat behind him and Gasly there as well. And it looked like it was going to be uh, 7th and 8th for Renault, but then Kvyat sort of stuck his nose into the, uh, well, barely even his nose, and into that the turn 16, the right-hander that's effectively the last quarter. The turn 17 is a sort of long, flat-out one. Kvyat was very angry about the 10-second the penalty he got that dropped him to 11th and put Hulkenberg back up to 10th and Gasly to 9th. So do you, do you agree with him that this was an outrageous anti-racing decision? <laughs> Not really. I've, I actually quite admired Hulkenberg's position on it, which was, well, you know, he's got to have a go because we're racing drivers. It's close. It's the last lap. It's a chance to get more points. So, yeah, fair play. But, but he also he also knew at that point that Kvyat had the penalty. Yeah. Because he was saying that, oh, I was there speaking to him. We had a big timing screen behind us. So if he hadn't already been told, he knew that the penalty had happened. Yeah, but he's just said... You can be... You can be <clears throat> A bit more relaxed about it when you yeah, know. but he said like if if you're going to do that, you you you've got to do it in a way that doesn't result in the other car going into the wall. And yeah. as no, soon was, as as was... soon as he took as soon as he turned Hulk round and the Renault went backwards into the barrier and broke the rear wing, I was actually quite surprised in that instance that that Hulkenberg got going and crossed the line in a position whereby he could inherit a point again when Kvyat got punished. It shows you should uh, never go. But I just that move wasn't wasn't on really. It was too far back, and it was just. Uh, but the irony is, from a Toro Rosso perspective, it was actually a net gain because Kvyat was tenth before that, and it ended up as a result with Pierre Gasly being bumped up to ninth place. So it actually, it, it gave an extra point to Toro Rosso and, and denied uh, denied Renault a point. So there's, there was a, actually a gain in the constructors' championship there as well. And uh, and we should we should say to Gasly, I think he deserved a little bit of luck at the end because he was. He was very ill overnight before qualifying with what might be called generic unpleasant illness. That's and and he did look. Um, spoke to him after qualifying. You could see he was he was struggling, and and he said, "Well, I felt all right once I got in the car, but he he knew his concentration, his his sharpness wasn't quite there, and he was only a tenth and a bit behind Kvyat in qualifying. But and of course he dropped back. He he struggled more with the tires than Kvyat got through them quicker and lost ground. So I think he deserved a little bit of luck to pick up a, a ninth place, especially as not only was he ill, but he's, he's had a really good run since returning to Toro Rosso. I've been very impressed with Gasly. There were about 150-odd people, I reckon, apparently, in uh, in the paddock that were affected. And I reckon that number probably increased from Saturday Did, morning. Uh, Alex Albon voiced the rumour that it was related to a toilet block in the middle of the paddock. Oh, really? That's interesting. But uh, I don't know whether that's... Uh, Full of conspiracy theories. Well, exactly. First, first you claim that Daniel Kvyat purposefully took out a Hulkenberg to give Gasly an extra place. And now you're claiming that a toilet in the middle of the paddock is called a bug that but has affected everybody. Credit to Daniel Kvyat. Also spoke to him after qualifying. He had his antibacterial hand gel with him. I'm all for letting them race, but that that was not an, that was not a, an on move. It wasn't deliberate. I think it was no. just a bit of desperation almost, but... Worked out all right for Toro Rosso, didn't it? So that's Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be a bit more serious now. And I've got uh, the Kvyat's words that he spoke to our uh, our uh, Russian colleague. Kvyat doesn't speak exclusively to Russians. It's just so happens that our Russian loves him. Um, so he was speaking to, to Oleg Karpov. And, he, and uh, Kvyat said that he didn't want to say too much because he's still very upset about it. But as a racing driver, he strongly disagrees with it. They told us we can race. We're allowed to race. I agree with you there, Danny, but you're also not allowed to put someone else in the wall. 
there's one bit where he says, I think people like to see some racing, and if we get penalised for it, they just kill the sport like this. I don't like what the stewards do sometimes. No, he's, he's just wrong. He is wrong. He's just, he's just absolutely flat wrong. There's nothing better when the driver says, I don't want to say much about this when they open with, because you know it's just going to be followed by a tirade of what they throwing mean their is, cards what, on the table. What they mean is, I know I shouldn't say much yeah. about this, but yeah, it, it was it's too far. Yeah, but you've the move's got to be on and somewhere near working. It wasn't. It wasn't like he went up the inside, had a massive back out of it, and it just sort of happened. It was just. Uh, it was just too little, too late. Really, that's the differentiation. He came from so far back. It, it, it just the move just wasn't on. If that had been a you know wheel to wheel incident where Kvyat's got the you know the front half of his car down the inside just before the corner and then makes the dive, then you could almost make a you know a case for that being a racing incident but he, he was just so far back there's there not even close to being a racing incident well while we're talking about Hulkenberg we should very briefly mention the news that broke actually after we recorded our last podcast which was that the Renaults were disqualified from the Japanese Grand Prix for this brake bias infringement I don't want to go into it in too much depth but effectively they didn't prove any of the uh, any of the technical regulations that Racing Point had accused them of breaking were were infringed, but they did say it it, it it broke the catch-all sporting regulation that the driver must drive the car alone and unaided. Uh, now, so slightly vague, one, but it's fairly clear that Renault was running with a system that they weren't really meant to. Although, as Roman Grosjean revealed, they've been running that system for a very, very long time. Yeah, so Grosjean said uh, been on the car since 2015 when. The team was formerly known as Lotus, so it's been around for a while. And, and Cyril Abitable said that they hadn't sought clarification from the the FIA that the, the design on the 2019 car was legal because it's been on the car for so long they had no reason to think it wasn't legal. Um, and you're right, it, <clears throat> you're right. They they the FIA found that it didn't breach any of the technical regulations, and Abitable and Renault were were very keen to point that out. To, to stress that they, I think they feel that they were stitched up a little bit by a contradiction in the rules because you've got technical regulations that clearly allow this device, but a sporting regulation that doesn't. And that sporting regulation, I agree with Abitable, is very subjective. And Abitable said it's not fit for purpose because it's too vague, basically, for the complexities of a modern F1 car. And I'm actually inclined to agree. It's a bit, when you've got things like automatic preset energy recovery system modes and stuff like that, what I mean the the ins and outs of the system because a lot of it was kept confidential it is a bit tricky to to explain and my I don't really it, it, have what, my head around it completely. What it wasn't was it wasn't one hundred percent fully automated. The brake bias sorts itself out every corner based on distance around the lap, which is kind of what Racing Point seemed to suggest in their original claim. So it's a little bit more about engaging presets and meaning that the driver has to do one thing rather than three or four. It's like semi-automatic, isn't it? Yeah, some kind of pre-selection going on, but. Uh, yeah, it's 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 one of those. I mean, the, the driving the car alone and unaided. There's a few there's a few rules there that are slightly that are deliberately catch-alls, and you kind of need them. So the alone and unaided is one of them. The movable aerodynamic device has been used for all sorts of things over the years. Some very legitimately, some less so. And then there's the general philosophy, which is what Charlie Whiting always used to talk about, which is the primary purpose. That if you've got something that's legal, that is clearly not actually doing what it's meant to be doing like if you have a fan that's blowing into the back of the car and its primary purpose really is for ground effect or whatever i'm going back to 78 problem here rather than for cooling then it's come on you're you're taking liberties there so you do i do think you do have to have these these little catch-alls although whether the reaction was it was appropriate is, a, is another question but ricardo said it was a very very small help but 
hardly a drive raid really it was it made no difference and it didn't really cause them any any trouble to uh, to adapt to so uh, but another blow for Renault and of course they had their uh, the boss of Renault said they'll consider the F1 team's future as part of their widespread review of the whole company as well so it's uh, in, a, in what's a very difficult season for Renault that's just another thing another thing on top of another thing on top of another thing yeah it's just not helpful is it it's bad PR and it's another example of the team failing to build proper momentum as Ricardo put it every time something good happens either the good things removed <laughs> quite quickly or it's followed up by something negative yeah just uh, just can't get the momentum uh, momentum, can, uh, momentum can they can't, can't say the word uh, well who else do we have yeah Daniel Kvyat of course was 11th Lance Stroll was 12th he briefly got up to 10th place but was really struggling on the on the hard so uh, so lost a few places towards the end then Carlos Sainz Jr. in 13th place he never managed to recover he made a second stop got back onto mediums but the 20 or so laps he was on on hards ruined his race uh, Antonio Giovinazzi in the Alfa Romeo the Alfa just wasn't very quick Giovinazzi slightly slower than Raikkonen in qualifying, drove a pretty decent race, but just nothing he could, nothing he could do. Ultimately, you can say the same thing for Kevin Magnussen in the in the Haas, which was uh, which was a, a, a struggle. Kimi Raikkonen in the other Alfa Romeo got sandwiched between Russell and Magnussen on the first lap, picked up a bit of floor damage, then the car was overheating and eventually retired. It's quite it's quite bad for Alfa Romeo that the car just doesn't seem to be very competitive. It just doesn't have the grip. Raikkonen said the balance was all right, wasn't problematic, but just not not enough grip. So they need to do some need to do some work with that car to, to get it working. Just completing the the quick summary. Yeah, George Russell sixteenth and Robert Kubica eighteenth. Uh, Kubica was nowhere in qualifying, something like one point three seconds down, and most of that gap was in the middle sector with the fast S's where he was he was really struggling. But actually in the race he he ran quite well. He got ahead of Russell, lost the position to a slow pit stop. He stopped before Russell. Russell stopped a lot later, but Russell was ahead of him because of Kubica's slow stop, and then he did a Wonderful move into turn six, the double apex slow right-hander to to nick the position back off uh, back off Russell. George had made up places at the start and then also on the first lap dropped back again. He got very hung out to dry on the outside. Yeah, exactly. And then ended up behind Kibitza and um, we asked him after the race whether he thought he should have been let past Kibitza because there was you know quite a fair chunk of that race where he was the quicker driver and uh, he said uh, in typical George Russell fashion, no, because it... Well, he would have liked to have been let pass, but he knows that if he was Robert, he would be furious if he was uh, told to move out of the way. So George was very uh, George was eloquent about that, but he did feel that they could move up two places if he'd have been let past and, and let loose. So that was interesting. It's possible it didn't happen until nine laps from the end, in fact, when Kibitza picked up a slow puncher and had to had to pit. It was, it's strange, actually, the gap between them extended to as much as 10 seconds at one stage when Russell didn't have the rubber of the green with the blue flags, and then it sort of went back again when Kibitza lost a, a load of time to, to blue flags but yeah the Williams was, was pretty quick it's relative gap to the front was not good but only about three tenths off the back of the midfield for George Russell so that was uh, that was very positive uh, for them they had some I think cooling spec tweaks as well so they're not overcooling the car quite so much and just just small little incremental steps. Williams have to take what victories they can ultimately. <laughs> well, obviously they've introduced the new front wing and it was the first time in qualifying that the, both cars had run the, the new front wing. Um, Dave Robson and George Russell both kind of saying that it was uh, 50-50, the, the reason for the performance between the, the new updates that they brought, including the front wing, but also the the characteristics of Mexico suited the, the Williams and brought it back towards the midfield so yeah new updates come in and they expect them to be much more effective in the coming races rather than Mexico but it was just a nice bonus that the car seemed to work fairly well there 
Uh, but overall, coming back to what happened at the front, Lewis Hamilton's victory didn't quite give him the world championship, but I think he he only needs an eighth place at worst, effectively, to, to win the title. Four points, I think, is what he needs. He needed 78 lead, didn't he? But he only had 74 Realistically, it's over, but chances are it'll be uh, it'll be done in uh, in Austin. Obviously, Valtteri Bottas will continue to say he's going to keep trying while it's open in the hope of a of a miracle. But yeah, we can we can expect a coronation, I think, in in the United States in a in a few days, and also a continuation of these fascinating battles. It's great when you've got a car that's stronger in qualifying and then others that are stronger in the race. It, it, it's why we've had this run of consistently good races, and actually. People always complain about in Formula One the pole position driver always wins, but that's that's not happened a great deal this year. Especially when the car that puts it on pole is Ferrari, because they've got a beautiful habit, haven't they, of uh, just failing to string it together. What's this? The it's a uh, third third race in a row that Ferrari's been on pole when Mercedes has won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Charles Leclerc's had seven poles this year, so he, nobody's going to have more poles than him this year. And you might end up with the outright most, which is, uh, yeah, it's it's been a uh, yeah fascinating season from from that perspective. Well, uh, please do check out allsport.com for all the uh, the latest from Formula One and the rest of the world of motorsport. Loads of fallout from the Mexican Grand Prix uh, there. This all sport podcast, of course, is out every Monday or Thursday. We'll have a United States Grand Prix preview uh, later in the week, and do check out Allsport Magazine, which is out on Thursday. Sistercycledmotorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Auto Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wendy's nose cold and soggy fries are the worst. So soggy. That's why we're serving up hot and crispy fries all day, every day. And all night. Until close. With natural cut potatoes, sea salted to perfection. Show me that potato skin. Wendy's hot and crispy aren't like other fries. We're your dream fry. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's hot and crispy fries. Guaranteed to be hot and crispy. If yours aren't, bring them back and we'll replace them. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.